नमस्ते एवरीवन वेलकम टू द चारबक पॉडकास्ट दिस इज योर होस्ट कुशल मेहरा ऑलराइट माय गेस्ट टुडे इज डॉक्टर दीप्ति नवरत्न शी इज अ म्यूजिशियन न्यूरोसाइंटिस्ट एंड ऑथर एंड टुडे वी आर गोइंग टू बी टॉकिंग अबाउट हर बुक द मैवरिक महाराजा दिस इज अ बायोग्राफी ऑफ महाराजा जयचमरंज राजेंद्र वडियार एंड इट इज माय एब्सोल्यूट प्लेजर टू हैव हर ऑन द पॉडकास्ट थैंक यू वेरी मच एंड वेलकम थैंक यू सो मच नमस्ते uh to all all those of you who have gathered here digitally and on various platforms thank you so much for inviting me happy to be here uh so now i have to ask you that so if if you don't mind we'll get into the book but uh, so so background in neuroscience and and i i was uh, reading a little bit so you want your your website says you want to explore a new interdisciplinary direction in music performance research and culture cultural entrepreneurship and you have mentioned neuroscience can we talk a little bit about that if you don't mind yeah because that's absolutely. like something i'm interested in <laughs> sure So, um, so like how how does neuroscience get into this well it doesn't at least in the scope of the book it doesn't but it sort of uh, i imagine my uh, engagement with arts and culture music and the science as a as a unitarian journey as a unifying journey as a as a journey towards a singularity not in the you know artificial intelligence uh, parlance uh and also if you look at uh, so sort of taking an indic perspective on that if one looks at the iconography of uh, saraswati she is holding the japa mala in one hand she is holding the sometimes holding the shown holding the shuka shuka pustaka veena manimala alankritam this is how the maharaja himself describes uh, saraswati in one of his uh, krutis so there's there's through these iconographies So he she is definitely wielding wielding the veena the the symbol of creative expression so all of these iconographies in our culture talk about the multifacetedness the multi uh, dimensionality of knowledge uh, and so i'm uh, i'm not satisfied simply singing the music i'm uh, very much interested in researching about it trying to find out who we are why we are and how we got here and why do we sing ragas and not i mean why do we find joy in creating and enjoying ragas as opposed to symphonies and that's where the neuroscientist steps in and uh, perhaps probing into the psyche of uh, multifaceted personalities like the maharaja who was a polymath uh, my training in the psychological aspects of neuroscience gives me a slight edge into understanding uh, the maverick manodharma if you will and uh, so neuroscience music arts culture uh research performance cultural entrepreneurship and now cultural diplomacy that's that's my new pet peeve so all of these things coalesce into one uh, gigantic zigzag puzzle that i call <laughs> my career orientation and journey so um yeah so and i find uh, great pleasure in that multidimensional uh, path towards excellence seeking excellence but uh, don't you think it is kind of appropriate in today's world where uh, interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary approaches to finding truths is is uh, is 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 the requirement of the day because uh, if even if we look at uh, academia today whether in the west or in india academia is slowly uh, I, i mean there is always going to be academic orthodoxy and and i'm not saying this in a pejorative way or a necessarily uh, the academia tends to believe in uh, Uh, field-based uh, speciality, and uh, sometimes there is uh, a little bit of resistance uh, in 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 an interdisciplinarian approach where you know you like to dabble a little bit across the base. But it's good. I, I I'm actually glad. In fact, uh, I was checking out your uh, so as part of my research, I I try to do and try to understand my guests as much as I can because uh, a lot of times uh, people don't realize that the first time I'm actually speaking with my guest is when they come live on the podcast. So I have to do all my research. I have to go back and I watch their interviews if as many as possible. And luckily with you, you have interviews online, so I could I could go and uh, check out uh, where you're coming <laughs> from. But now to to get into the book, so if if. It, why did you decide to say write a book on this particular uh, family and this particular personality and why the title the maverick maharaja 
Yeah. Well, the book was uh, a beautiful accident. I, while I was at the New England Conservatory in England, um, I was looking for musical uh, examples from the past, uh, which had these East meets West encounters, uh, where there was a fertile crossover of ideas, syntax, vocabulary, and jargon from like, you know, uh, Western music into Indian classical music uh, or Western genres which have crossed over into Indian genres and Indian ideas which have crossed over into the uh, European art music scenario. And then there's this popular perception that this happened in the George Harrison Beatles era, right? You may think I'm a dreamer, but I'm not. But then there were dreamers before <laughs> John Lennon. And many of those dreamers, uh, interestingly, were situated in uh, Mysore, uh, um, it was strange that I discovered a whole new facet to Mysore sitting far away, far, far away in Boston. And I realized that some of these very fertile musical encounters happened in the Mysore court, which had a full-fledged Western orchestra and new music. Very fertile uh, culture, intercultural encounters happened in Mysore, not, not in the 19th century, but in the 18th century and in the 19th century, and that some of these uh, relics of this of these intercultural encounters have are still continuing. For example, the Mysore Police Department has a police band which plays this music even today. So these are living, fascinating living traditions, which uh, give you a small little glimpse into this uh, mystical, magical past, if you will. And so that's how I chanced upon the music of the Maharaja. And because the Maharaja had written, Maharaja Jaicham Rajendra Wadiyar had written exclusively for the band, combining uh, Western uh, musical syntax with Carnatic ragas and uh, kritis and so on. I was drawn to his music. I was fascinated by his music that somebody could actually imagine a whole new uh, idiom. And then I got fascinated with the personality because, uh, you know, music can really, really mirror a person's psyche in ways that nothing else can and so i began writing about his music and i decided that you know his music his life is fascinating enough and that this story has not been told uh there was no biography of the man and uh, while we were growing up in uh, bengaluru i was born and raised in bengaluru and so i've done my share of uh, mugging up the history textbooks to like you know get passing marks <laughs> The man was always the fill up the blanks question. I sort of remember him as the last Maharaja of Mysore. That was that was the place that history had, our history had, as written and enjoyed at that point in time, had accorded him. And so uh, there was so much more to his personality and so much of a international impact the man had during his time and period. And that was quite intrigued initially that nobody had actually written about him in English and a full full-on uh, full biography for you know national or international consumption and sort of I tiptoed myself into his life and uh, found myself completely consumed by the man and his polymath genius and uh, decided to do another crossover into history and biography and uh, donning the role of a biographer which which I, which is a very complicated place to <laughs> be in <laughs> for various reasons. <laughs> so, so if you don't, if you don't mind me dabbling a little bit more into this music, but as you said, you know, Western music being influenced by the East and East being influenced by the West, uh, you obviously are a professionally trained singer, musician. You understand this. So, and you know, very rarely do my guests have the opportunity. My guests are people who are from a musical background. I mean, I've had Ram Sampat, I have Sona Mohapatra on the podcast. So, so you know, wherever I get people who are uh, uh, way more skilled than I am, obviously, I try to make the most of it. So, I'm going to make take this opportunity and uh, nerd out a little bit. Can you share some examples and explain to my viewers and listeners? What exactly do we mean when we say A type of music is being influenced by B? And I don't care if you have to sing or you don't have to sing. I'm not saying you have to. I'm just saying, please explain this because it is very important. Like I I, I don't know how else to say it. Like I, I get very nerdy when I listen to these things. Like I wonder what has happened. So can you explain this a little more? Yeah, um, there is this thing called the Mysore State Anthem. And in fact, that uh, was... 
that can be considered the very first eat me east meets west uh, uh, intercultural experiment when uh, jay chamarajendra wadiyar's uh, grandfather chamaraja wadiyar the 10th was actually restored on the mysore crown they wanted an anthem for mysore uh there was always the anthem for the king the emperor and they wanted a benediction which would actually evoke uh those very sentiments for the raja because after a short hiatus the raja had come back on the throne and mysore was uh, being restored to the warriors and so abas basavappa shastriya kannada poet pens lyrics in kannada in chaste kannada kayau shri gauri karuna lahari toya jakshi shankarishwari it is as if you just look at the lyrics you can imagine that being sung in a quaint temple in mysore but instead this is tuned in an ionian scale what is called an ionian scale in in western parlance and the melody was tuned by uh, a bandmaster called mr bartels to a double duplex meter so you can if i sing this which i will uh thank you for uh, i always like to open my mouth to sing <laughs> sing more and speak less if that's possible but it's not always possible so so you can this is a march band actually so the kayo shri gauri karuna lahari toya jakshi shankarishwari that thing becomes actually a march a band driven uh, uh, you know a music a piece and then it you can actually imagine a band going rum chak room chak chak underneath this so since i don't have a band here i'll just try my best to sort of show you what i mean kayo shri gauri karunalahari kayo shri gauri karunalahari toy jakshi ಶಂಕರೀಶ್ವರೀಶ್ವರೀಶ್ರೀಜಯಚಾಮುಂಡಿಕೆಶ್ರೀಜಯಚಾಮೇಂದ್ರ kayo shri gauri karuna lahari so it, you can actually imagine this being played by a march band in uh, in front of buckingham palace you can actually hear is the ram chak chak karat tarat tapam ratatam ratatam tam ratatam yeah i i actually get it because i used to play drums so i could actually relate to what you're yeah. saying this is or this is arranged for a full scale uh, band with the brass band and the trombones howling and the and the cymbals uh, going rapapapam on the on the on the high beats of the music um so yeah uh, so these these ideas of a, of a benediction get enmelded with the idea of a march band and most importantly with the idea of state pageantry right even today at the mysore dasra which is a fairly religious uh, congregation you will find these men sporting fairly western costumes straight from buckingham palace playing these you know march tunes today and there's a reason that they are doing that for chamundi <laughs> so so as a musician uh, uh, again sorry about the follow up um no. so the western singing style and the creative style if i try to understand it it has less scope of maneuvering and experimentation in comparison to the indian style and you being a trained classical singer so who better to ask this question than a trained classical singer so <laughs> how does one do the blending then because like in classical singing from yeah. what i have understood is like i have seen interviews where the musicians playing with say for example bhimsen joshi have to adjust to what he is doing he doesn't adjust to what they are doing so they are like yes, yes. Uh, okay if he goes left we go left if he goes right we go right and it is all spontaneous so how does the western pattern which is very fixed you know there are fixed chords there are fixed sets there are fixed beats everybody follows a pattern how does yeah. the east meet the western 
You're so right. Although on paper, the idea seems very romantic, right? East meets the West. And uh, our Raga, Raga meets Symphony. Beethoven meets, uh, you know, Dikshitar. And Tyagaraja meets Debussy and all of that. But their highly incompatible systems are their very core identities. For example, Raga music is rooted in uh, monophony. Like you can't harmonize a Raga. And then for a symphonic form... Harmony tonality is at its very root. So, and then in terms of uh, complexity, let's look at these systems and just in terms of complexity. While the symphonic form believes in layers and layers of music which are packed one on top of each other, so complexity is explored at the level of vertical, at the level of the vertical. Sometimes a trombone is just doing and then, you know, there's a violin that is soaring like on top of that. And the operatic voice may be doing fairly simple maneuvers on top of that. But as a whole, that vertical slice of music comes out as extraordinarily sophisticated and complex. But in the Carnatic ensemble, which has only three layers, typically the voice the uh, Mridangam and the, of course, there's Mr. Drone Box, which who's always like, you know, telling you where to go and all of that. Uh, and then the uh, violinist who sometimes is always echoing what the voice is singing. So there's, he's not really bringing new nuances to the whole uh, table. So in this uh, trio of sorts, complexity is the same level of complexity is achieved by the soloist doing all the gymnastics <laughs> so the, the there's more room in the indian classical milieu for the soloist to explore uh, more complexity at the level of like vocal pyrotechnics techniques for example uh, that's how our comp that's why our compositions like you take a tagaraja composition on one word is your first statement there's more room for the vocalist to develop the musical idea at the level of the line, at the level of, you know, more sangatis as they're called in music. And for this complexity to emerge horizontally than vertically in, in a symphonic form. I think that's sort of the, both forms have the same... Uh, uh, level of complexity, but they achieve it in various directions and in various uh, dimensions. But so if you put them together, it is hard that that uh, or as much as it's a romantic escapade, um, it's very hard for that anthropomorphic musical creature to live somewhere, right, is the hardest. Um, if you create a new hybrid, uh, that musical hybrid has to have its own identity, which neither lives here or there. And that and how creatively one is able to create uh, this new hybrid is a testament to his uh, musical genius. So that's why there have been very few successful experiments with the, despite this whole uh, uh, hula-bula-boo about like, oh, East meets West. Um, well, some of the Carnatic fusion is just simply substitutions. The... Uh, you would uh, remove the mudrangam with and put a drum in its place and then you remove the tambura and then simply add chords to it which is really no real innovation right because you're simply substituting instruments but they say play the same roles in the ensemble so it's so a hard basically set. what you're trying to say is the singing is not changing because the singing is the same you're just changing the sound in the back right so it's just what what the mrudangam would sound you've just replaced it with a drum kit and it's nothing is really changing and uh, i get it yeah I, I i can get it i'm not uh into singing but i understand mu playing instruments so i i could actually understand what you're saying there shakti for that matter shakti take shakti Shakti is so Carnatic dominated. It is a. It is actually Carnatic driven, right? <laughs> Akriti drives every single piece in that album, while people take some glorious solos and all of that, and or and sort of harmonize it. It's really difficult, and all the music of uh, European art composers who who say they have composed with Indian inspirations. For example, the uh, uh, I think it is Deepasi's Indian Fantasy. If you listen to those pieces, <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> I don't find any Indianness in them. Uh, uh, so, like I said, those hybrids have to live somewhere, and then um, that's the challenge with these East meets West uh, experimentations. But it's good. I'm I'm all for experimentation because uh, nature believes in uh, recombination. Nature believes in moving forward. Nature believes in all kinds of enveloping. Uh, non-enveloping creativity. So some experiments will fail, some experiments will live on, some experiments will become, they'll become mainstream, like the violin in Carnatic music. It was an experiment one at one point in time, and it's now the mainstream, so. <laughs> so, so one fascinating thing about the Maharaja, I, I like to read a bit from your book, is that uh, you say this Mahara, Maverick Maharaja dreamt of minting reams of pedantic Papyrus, he curated the only translation of the terse 10,552 mantras of the Rigveda Sanhita to Kannada so his people could access that treasure. So if it was not for him, we would not have this literally. Literally. And uh, another oh. backstory to that is he did this after he stepped down the throne of Mysore. It is as if he was pursuing, he was fulfilling his Rajadharma even after he actually had officially signed it off. And uh, these it's these vignettes that make his story very, very heartwarming. And um, see, we are told this, we are sold and told this sort of uh, story. We are sold this perception that royalty in the colonial era, where this monolithic perception that they were all vain people who really had no little, no real uh, significance either for their own kingdoms or for India or for the globe at large. But once that dismissal, that veil of dismissal is shattered, you will find that this soil has produced quality leadership even during the colonial era. It's not enough to simply sit and cry foul that our history textbooks today are full of stories of invaders and infidels. It's more important to bring these stories out so that it is there. The untarnished truth is there for people to see and to challenge that notion that uh, that these princely lives were uh, were were really simply you know stooges of the British Empire, vassals who sold away their dignity to appease the white man and uh, did nothing for the welfare of their subjects. And uh, see, the idea of Rajadharma, again, uh, keeps coming back. See, Padmanabhadasa, Martanda Varma said, I am Padmanabhadasa. Even the crown has the uh, padukas of uh, Padmanabha Swami. And then even today, that family is defending faith, right? It's defending the Padmanabha Swami temple. Similarly, many of these kings, I'm not saying everybody, many of these kings, even after they were dethroned, continued to defend and preserve and curate and fight for the preservation of our culture, our, our Indian knowledge systems, our music, um, and also of the general idea of what a plural society should be. And how that that plurality, their notion of plural, plurality is interesting. And it is along the lines of what Swami Vivekananda said in his, in his uh, uh, speech at the Parliament of World Religions. This is the land, even when there was no constitution of India, that has welcomed so many religious minorities and embraced a plural society with no legal, you know... Um, hold that required it to do so. So how these people have uh, uh, strived and showed certain kinds of cultural, cultural, social, and uh, what do you say, leadership of a very different kind to create inclusive, quote unquote, inclusive societies, which could embrace plurality, not as a problem, but as a fantastic opportunity. I think that's the shining, uh, you know, moment in these uh, stories. The Mysore band, for that matter, had Christians, had Muslims, had Jews, had North Indians, had South Indians, had like, you know, Germans, <laughs> refugees from World War One. It was, and what Mysore managed to create in that time and space is, uh, is a fascinating story. Maybe it has a lot of messages for us today in, in how we would like to lead 
and grow into that kind of a society where uh, you really need not have to divorce your roots to actually embrace the current so i it's only fair that i mean you did mention it in a passing reference because that is something of a charge laid at the wadiars uh, about being british stooges i mean i i have to ask otherwise i would be doing an unfair job as a person who's discussing this subject about a maharaja because there has been significant uh, historical uh, charges against the family about being british stooges and i'll go even one step further where tipu sultan is shown in a particular light <laughs> and uh, the the wadiar family is shown in a particular light now uh, how do we deal with that subject i mean I, i don't know how else to say it like how does one deal with the subject because when i read your book to me four strands of the maharaja come across one is a polymath as you rightly said a voracious reader a writer a reader and a writer someone who consumes a lot someone who dabbles a lot in philosophy which is my subject i love philosophy right i i i am obsessed with philosophy that is something and his his way of looking at the world through i i i would i don't want to be unfair but it looks like a primarily advaitin world view in, in my opinion yes. he he, yeah. he has a advaitin world view because from whatever because i started once i read your book then i went to level. that's why i took so much time because people don't realize ki why do i take so much time to do one book review because then i read the book and then i do my fact checking of the book and then i start reading more about the book i got interested in the maharaja i read a few things of the maharaja and i understood okay maharaja has a advaitin world view the third is his his deep knowledge of music which we already covered in the first half now in such a issue where do you think have things gone wrong that none of this like these aspects of the maharaja have not come out but only that he is a british stooge has come out yeah i mean uh, there are two reasons history is always a perception game like we just discussed right uh, and colonial seedingly written by Uh, history is handmaiden of the hands that actually document that uh, that part of history so um tipu sultan was very important to the british memory right because he challenged and uh, he challenged uh, the he actually sort of uh, scared the hell out of their uh, their uh, need to conquer india completely so he was very important to british memory but it it's it's maybe it maybe it's time to think whether he is as important to our memory today right now and it's okay to like uh, you know tipu's contested history tipu's contested legacy it's okay to recontest and reexamine and deconstruct and reconstruct old histories and if we want to do that of tipu's history it is also fine to do that as long as the unvarnished truth is uh, is exposed and all aspects of the may may all aspects of the truth be exposed all at once but i also feel that um uh, stories like these which do not fall on the fault lines of history right the maharaja was was a good guy was a philosopher was a serious polymath he uh, his gifts to india for example you know the the wadiar kings gave india so many of their of so many of the national laboratories the history of science in south india is so inextricably linked to the uh, to the wadiar legacy for example vani vilas sanidhana the regent queen actually gave permission to start the indian institute of science and which the maharaja furthered and uh, added the aeronautical engineering department and so on the the hal story the hindustan aeronautics limited the maharaja started hindustan aeronautics limited which sort of kick started the def- uh, defense aerospace industry for india not just for mysore and also was a key player in india winning this uh, world war 2 mysore had a had not only sent man- men and resources but also innovated technologically so that the japanese occupation of india did not become a reality mysore sent a whole squadron called the mysore squadron of um, jets called the mysore squadron which fought uh, for british india and all those workhorses were serviced here in bengaluru at the hal <laughs> so 
these contributions to like you know um, to india and at large are are not small the national tuberculosis institute the central food uh, technological research institute these are all national laboratories and they are not housed in bengaluru and mysuru by any stroke of luck so here is a story of a man who did who was himself a math polymath was a philosopher wrote books on the advaita vedanta and gave several gifts sovereign souvenirs and gifts to the nation to sell this story i realized because it does not fall on the fault lines of history like you know uh, is is very to sell this story or to tell this story is very difficult because it is not trp worthy <laughs> in so many ways because i realized it's very difficult to sell a good story it's very difficult to tell the story of a man whose uh, whose uh, virtue was faultless it's very easy to tell the story that lies on these fault lines of whether you know tipu was good or bad <laughs> people love binaries history loves binaries mm-hmm. but truth is always gray it's some shade of gray um yeah it is true can we talk about um this bit uh, i just want to read this excerpt here you say the monist philosophies of advaita vedanta and the oldest and the most premier school of vedanta anchored the mind of jcw he was a shri vidya upasaka an ardent student of the practice of shri vidya which imparts yeah. knowledge of the self through an alchemy of tantra mantra and yantra in his life one finds a shining example of how religious practice can engineer a mind that's capable of transcending the binaries of reason and faith as understood by the west the core ideas of western enlightenment were built around the centrality of thought and reason it believed in the absolutism of evidence of the senses of observation and inference as primary uh, sources of gaining knowledge now what what exactly did the maharaja say when it came to understanding and garnering knowledge yeah i in this chapter i call him uh, call him a bhogi of knowledge the maharaja had one big vice he he was he had an insatiable urge for knowledge and uh, he gambled avidly with his very many faculties to like uh, always he was always a seeker of knowledge in fact i'd like to sort of read uh, um uh, this uh, quote uh which is there in the foreword written by his uh, daughter uh, maharaj kumari shrimati indrakshi devi wadiyar he says it's very interesting to note how he looks at himself he was a pedigree king he was many things but it's very interesting to see how he himself perceived uh, his role and his place in space so he says several positions of honor and dignity i have held in my life as a result of the circumstances of my birth but he, there is one position one destiny i have carved out for myself and that is as a student shall i say an advanced student of literature history philosophy music and above all our ancient culture which illuminates my path and which serves as a perpetual refreshment for my mind and soul so we uh, that sort of fully encapsulates how he placed himself in this in the larger milieu of things and the the raja dharma or his role as uh, the, uh, the administrator or a statesman on top of the mysur gaddi was just he saw as one of the many roles that he was born to fulfill he he was not he was not the crown and that's why i write in the very beginning uh, that it's not very often that the man emerges from the shadows of the crown how many biographies of maharajas are beyond the crown that's another interesting point uh, when mysore exited his world right so um it's as if when mysore exited his world he was only 30 <laughs> but for 10 years as a 20 year old lad he was thrust on the mysore throne and for 10 years through the one of the worst political uh, times for both mysore and india he he was on the mysore throne and when mysore exited his world it's as if multiple avatars rose in his life he that he's somewhat freed from uh, the burdens of being a statesman and running the state 
and he decides to like sort of resuscitate the philhar he he does very very anachronistic things um and that's why i call him the maverick the time and place and the way in which he did what he did that's what makes him a maverick it is not the sum total of the things he achieved in a in his uh, very short life uh, of 55 years but once he was freed from mysore he said oh yeah many many avatars rose he was a benefactor he resuscitated the orchestra scene in london founded something called the philharmonia society not in mysore but in london which continues to play today as the philharmonia orchestra and uh, he wrote about the advaita vedanta he furiously composes 100 compositions and never looks back they did not even bother to document them he was more bothered about saving other the legacies of other musicians in mysore and uh, abroad and uh, decided that he wants to be a cultural ambassador wants to write and lecture all over the globe about uh, uh, sanatana dharma about indic uh, values he was one of the founders of the vishwa hindu parishad um another lesser known fact is that some of the very early meetings of vishwa hindu parishad its mandate and all of that was uh, chalked out at the mysore palace with the financial assistance and uh, blessings of the maharaja so uh, he did all of this and the interesting thing is the fact that he was a really very religious man uh he was a very religious man the shri vidya like i said the shri vidya upasana provided him with the key to tide over his turbulent times so i'm sorry i'm sort of launching into very long monologues here but um see uh, i'll take a short segue here um segue here sorry um Aristotle did not believe in the idea of a philosopher king because he thought the idea of a thinking man is really antagonistic to the idea of a king who's supposed to be all brute and testosterone right Plato's philosopher king was rejected by many people although Alexander the Great who um who calls himself a philosopher king was supposedly a uh, a bhakt of uh, Aristotle so the western world has actually battled with this idea of a philosopher king but in india we've had a huge long list of kings who used philosophy to anchor their soul who used philosophy to show them the way who else but the kings king need, who else but the king needs philosophy more than right uh, more than anybody else the king's mind the king's psyche the king's atma king's atman needs ways to uh, meet the brahman right um so in the maharaja's life his practice of the shri vidya also powered his creative offerings all of his music is about the uh, the devi and his journey with the shri vidya it also gave him this requisite separation to let go of mysore and to tide those uh, circumstances it's a story of will over destiny and to do what is best without an over uh, over attachment to the uh, to the to one single role as a as a statesman and as a king so in fact when he is asked about you know how did it feel to let go of uh, i was just at the mysore palace the other day and then i was just walking away from the mysore palace and i am just a commoner and as i was walking away i thought what it would have meant to simply walk away from that riches from that splendor and glory and to walk away like that only an avadhuta can do that and do it with grace and so um i write that you know what use is music if the song is not heard within right <laughs> what's the use of philosophy if it does not give the man the philosopher the tools to tide over his circumstances gracefully and beautifully and and create an alchemy of opportunity and that's exactly what the maharaja did when mysore exited he said great i'm now going to be a freemason of my own destiny and did whatever he wanted to do he decided to take up this rigveda samhita project 15 years there is no other translation of the rigveda samhita in any other uh, vernacular language other than kannada it took 15 years of so many hands and minds 
<laughs> to do that it is a herculean task it is actually a it is a mammoth project that was completed by the maharaja fully on his expense and it's available for the kanadigas to access the divine knowledge of the um of our uh, knowledge system so those things um somebody who's unconditionally as i write in the book somebody who's unconditionally hell bent on being himself first gaddi or not that to me yep. sounds like a maverick and somebody who's see the fact that he was a religious man believed in hinduism did not prevent him from appreciating the beauty of a symphonic form which had no metaphors or symbolism of hindu uh, life so it's that very beautiful uh, rooted in in one's dharma rooted in one's uh, culture but then looking at the incoming not as a problematic uh, you know irritation but as something that um presents a beautiful opportunity to grow into something beautiful yeah i get it but uh, you use the word avuduta again i want to read this bit in this in his lecture avuduta reason and reverence and the indian institute of for world culture JCW yeah. describes the economic state of an avaduta thus quote he is described as a pure sinless aesthetically balanced bhogi enjoyer of lives and obviously uh, uh, you you say sudat niranjana samarasa bhogi this indicates that the avaduta is adept in the art of life his fascination with the concept of an avaduta was perhaps because it was a philosophy closest to his reality the avaduta gita gave him the recipe to enjoy his royal material bhogas while consuming the redeeming spirituality of the arts music and literature most importantly it contextualized his incessant bhoga of knowledge which he did in great amounts throughout his life now a lot of people may not know this fact that when india got its independence from the british and obviously when the um the princely states were were you know sardar vallabhbhai patel and the indian government went one by one Mysore was one of the first states that basically pretty much said okay we're part of india right yes yes in fact uh, that 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 landslide of the princely states taking this idea of an instrument of accession was triggered by uh, mysore's uh, signing and maharaja's signing the instrument of accession because there were many many princely states very small princely states there were these big five princely states mysore baroda um gwalior um so they these uh, these princely states were the big five princely states and they wanted several of them to actually kick start this um uh, landslide towards sort of creation of this indian union because back then the the idea of a balkan india right was looming large um for many of us really do not know uh, and i also did not know until i did in depth research was that india had uh, had elections even before we formally declared independence right and uh, there were many princely kingdoms who were wanting to join pakistan and there were and what was you know uh, not pakistan then but they were planning to join the other nation and and they were inside india for example hyderabad the nizam of hyderabad was was not willing to join the indian union so it was patel and vp menon who uh, devised this gulpable pill called the instrument of accession it was actually pure genius i would say but for that innovation at that timely innovation at that point in time we would have had a very different uh, charter of history uh, written out for us so the instrument of accession was a was was a was pure genius they said externalize defense externalize your internal external affairs and you will get autonomy to run your state so from 1947 to 1950 the maharaja was a sovereign so there was a constitution of mysore uh, which ran mysore until the idea of the indian republic emerged in 1950 so that's when actually mysore melded with the indian uh, union so to speak and so this whole uh, nation building story of you know uh, mysore melding into india and uh, 
JC, JCW or Jai Cham Rajendra Wadi are joining hands with Patel. He also gave his Mysore Dakota. It was it was his magic carpet. <laughs> So it was uh, it was a it was his personal jet and he gave it to Sadar Patel. It put it at his disposal and uh, Patel used it used it extensively to fly to all of the princely states and get consensus on uh, on sort of the formation of the Indian Union. So there's this story actually there's this message by Patel also where he says he had clocked several thousands of miles on the Mysore Dakota. <laughs> before he actually landed in Mysore. So he saw that as a very interesting uh, uh, thing that he had never set foot in Mysore, but he had used the Mysore Dakota to fly all over India to create consensus for the Indian Union. And he is very, very thankful to the Maharaja for having done that uh, on his own accord. Nobody asked him to, or there was no regulation that required him to do that. Yeah, in oh. fact, I, I want to read this. When asked how difficult it was to make the decision to give away his kingdom to the Indian Union, uh, he replied, quote, I was inclined towards Vedanta almost right from my childhood. It was not at all difficult to change the new situation. We are all parts of Paramatma, the great soul, Vishwatma, the universal soul. This is ruling over us. Democracy is a practical application of this universal principle. By saying democracy is an application of the principle of Vishwatma, it is as if he stands on the shoulders of the men of enlightenment and the Advaita at once to come to this simple acceptance of what use is philosophy if it does not help men write their realities. And then you have obviously quoted him on his 37th birthday in his reply to an address presented to him by the chief minister on 29 July 1956. You have we just mentioned it before that you have referred in your address to what your generosity has termed my sacrifice. I do not look upon it as such. If destiny has decreed that over the past few centuries, the progress and the prosperity of the people of this beloved state should be in the hands of the Vadiyars of Mysore, then that same destiny now ordains that the time is ripe for the people now grown to full political stature in a free democratic republic to rule themselves. The rule of the Maharajas has indeed fulfilled its purpose, the purpose of making the people fit to rule themselves this is a this is a very mature statement this is this yep. is a very good statement but now i have to talk about this you mentioned this and you mentioned vikram also in the book so you talk about the origin of mysore park now let us settle this once and for all because anand ranganathan and uh, you know everybody seems to have an ongoing debate happening on twitter right now so what is mm. the origin of mysore park tell the story <laughs> i think it originated as a quick fix recipe that was cooked up in a haste that's the that's at least that's the anecdotal story um i fail i fail to remember the name of the chef who actually did that and uh, it was a huge hit with the royal family and uh, was was prescribed to be part of the feast for several festivities so being a mysorean i'll say jai mysore it was <laughs> <laughs> it happened in Mysore. Every all roads lead to Mysore. Jai Chamundi. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. So in your book, you say the legend has it that Mysore Park, the dessert, as was an accidental success. Kakasura yes. Madappa, the chief chef of uh, Nalwadi <laughs> Krishna Raja Vadiyar, on an occasion had to make a dessert rather quickly, mixing gram flour and ghee to a sugar paka concoction. The experimental Mysore Park was presented with the Royal Thali and it was an instant hit. Today, this Mysore Park is sold to gourmets all over the world and is a standard staple in most meat meat stores. Like, I, I don't know how to say this. This is such a, like, uh, uh, anticlimactical end to the whole story. I thought there was somebody who must have sat down. Okay, let us try this. Let us try that. No, Listen, this seems like Are, jaldi karo. we have to find something. He <laughs> wants <laughs> yeah, so this is like you know, Khoda Pahad Nikla Chua Jisko Volte in Hindi. Mein. And I was like, What the hell? When I read this part in your book, I was like, Damn it, this is all the origin story is. I thought it must be some complex creation, <laughs> yeah. No, and it is, it's, it's a case of sweet serendipity actually. And that the fact that it sort of, you know, was a hit with the royal uh, gentry and everybody was like, yeah, give me some of that. And so I'm with Vikram on this one. Uh, <laughs> yeah. For sure. All right. Uh, so, so, 
Okay, so let me now take a few uh, questions because there are a few questions that our viewers have asked also. So uh, someone has asked, what do you trace the ancestry to Gujarat, Dwarka, Yaduvanchis? Is there a Gujarat connection in the music? Just like Jaggery in Sambar, I guess, somebody has written. So do you know about them? Yeah, um, according to historians, there are uh, sort of two stories on the origins of what you are presents. One is that uh, there were two brothers who came from Gujarat and uh, they were invited by the queen who um, who was wanting to slay one of the evil suitors of um, uh, to her daughter. That's one story. Um, so there is this. Uh, the other story is that the, that the Wadiyar dynasty or the two brothers who founded the Wadiyar dynasty were actually from the Arsu community, from the, there were several Dalavois, right? So the Vijayanagara Empire was was a confederation of very many chieftains and generals and Dalavois and uh, the Arsu, the, the, what do you say, the warrior community, several warrior communities who used to collect taxes for the Vijayanagara Empire and who functioned as local warlords and sometimes as kings. And so they, there was this already, this presence of the Arsu, uh, what are uh, gentry in that area and uh, the other uh, story is that uh, they were localites who actually helped uh, dethrone an evil uh, uh, usurper to the throne and uh, finally installed themselves on the throne after the uh, fall of the Vijayanagar empire but uh, there is a Gujarat connection because uh, there are many many Gujarat connections um, Chamaraja Vadeer was great friends with and Mysore and Baroda have this very very interesting shared ancestry of of uh, leadership and uh, preserving Indic culture. Uh, there's an Oriental Research Institute in Mysore. There's an Oriental Research Institute in uh, Baroda. There is uh, there are there are ties of friendship, ties of women given in um, marriage to each other's uh, royal families. Um, so Mysore and Baroda and Gujarat have, uh, there's a, yeah, I forget the most obvious one. There is a Sayajira road in Mysore named on Sayajira of, uh, Gaikwad of, uh, Baroda. And there is a Wadiyar road that I think if I'm not wrong, leads into the MS university today in Baroda. So they were great friends and Mysore and Baroda mimicked, uh, their administrative, um, uh, ideas on, uh, democratic apparatuses universities, MS universities were, university was modeled on the Mysore University idea and so on. So there's been a lot of um, give and take and um, positive things that have happened in this, this road from Mysore to Baroda. There was also a big railway line, if I'm not wrong, that went from Mysore to Baroda and Dharwad in Karnataka being the cultural capital for Hindustani music is perhaps because it was the stopover point from the, of this railway line from Mysore to Baroda. So many things went on that line. That, I must that's say. fascinating. That That's fascinating. So the next question I want to ask is, someone has asked, uh, uh, in the Luru Paris, uh, we see a lot of evidence of Vadiya saving artifacts of Hinduism. How was uh, the Maharaja's relation with... Uh, let's say, the Lingayats in Sri Rangapatnam and the Jain community, uh, in your research, did you see inter-religious communication uh, or inter-panthic, if I was to use the correct word, inter-panthic communication and how would the Maharaja deal um, in those uh, with uh, different panthas, if I was to say, or darshanas? Ah, well, the uh, JSS institution of the Lingayats in uh, in Mysore and Karnataka, the JSS Matha, the Sutur Matha, the place for it, and the uh, the the royal family has always had a very very intimate uh, uh, relationship and patronage that it has received uh, from the time of Krishnaraj Wadiyar to uh, Jaicham Rajendra Wadiyar. They were land grants were being given to establish these Mathas. Um, in fact, uh, there is. Uh, I really do not know about the links between the uh, the Jain community that is sort of stationed in the Shravanabalagula area to Mysore. But uh, Mysore as a whole, um, the, the Mysore administration was, was patronizing all uh, communities, inclusive of the Jews in, <laughs> in Mysore. 
the Christians and such such large land grants were given to uh, all uh, religious minorities in the Mysore state. So it is, uh, like I said, it's an interesting case of how one can give excellent governance and embrace plurality in a very different positive uh, idiom. All right. So this question is more about, I guess, your music and neuroscience bit. So someone has asked from your combined research on music and neuroscience, is there a way to increase neuronal myelination or IQ mm. by listening to certain types of music? Or I will add a little bit more to this. Do uh, have they done, you know, backward integration studies on uh, certain uh, people who listen to certain music have certain inclinations or certain patterns of behavior? What a brilliant question. Uh, um, I think uh, there is a book called Manasol Lhasa written by, uh, written in, written a long, long time ago. I forget the century in which it was written. It was written by a king, which talks about how this the kind of music that you like, uh, he actually does this reverse engineering. The kind of music that you like, what does it tell you about you? <laughs> so, um, so to sort of uh, on the con so to sort of to get take a contrarian view, yes, um, musical uh, immersion or engagement, listening to music, um, is not known to increase your myelination because see it's a passive activity if you simply sit and listen to some music it's highly unlikely that your myelin uh, myelination or your overall ability to like form new neuronal networks uh, or cognitive enhance your cognitive foundations um, will be uh, augmented but if you actually do music for example if you create a if you drum, if you play an instrument, if you actually would like to get your hands dirty and get to doing music, music making, singing, chanting, drumming, um, all of these activities, because they involve doing, they're active, they can actually trigger myelination, the formation of new neuronal circuits, which, uh, which can alter the structurality of the brain for, let's say, higher IQ, um, because uh, there were long a short while ago, there was this baby Mozart effect, right? You play Mozart to babies and the babies suddenly become very brilliant. So all of those uh, myths have been debunked uh, today, saying that, you know, simply listening to some music may increase your ability to sit in one place and attend to something, which is attentionality. But and that, that may have its own benefits. You may be able to, you know, if you're able to sit and really focus on something for five minutes, then you may be able to sit for five minutes and write an essay. You may be able to sit for five minutes and intently like you know create something paint something and so on so while there are crossovers of that uh, attentionality it does not change your rewire your brain it does not change your brain for the better it does not make you a better um, um, more intelligent person or smarter person it doesn't enhance your cognitive foundation so much which is i guess your question about myelination so Fair music enough. in my opinion is, is a is an unwritten book. <laughs> so one, one last question before I uh, before uh, we end the podcast. So we started in music. I want to end at music. Uh, again, as a trained singer, musician, um, what do you think is the state of classical music? I know it's a very cliched question. Is because I'm passionate about classical music. Uh, I I listen to a lot of folk music, which is semi-classical, not purely classical but it does have elements of classical music like uh, my background I, I i like vadali brothers for example i like to listen to mm -hmm. vadali brothers i love listening mm -hmm. to them but um, wh what do you think is the state it doesn't matter if it's carnatic or hindustani just classical music in general um, so i'll give you an example i had shared the same example if i remember correctly with sona mahapatra in my podcast with her. So Shiv Kumar, Pandit Shiv Kumar Sharma, he, I think he passed away recently, a few months ago, if I remember correctly. So he had said in an interview, he's like, where, uh, where he mentions that ragas are supposed to be sung at particular hours, right? Right. You have mm -hmm. morning ragas, evening ragas, whatever specific time slot. He's like, today, if I sing that morning raga, Right? How many people are going to turn up? So how do I make so so for you as a 
as a person who is actively involved in this where are you on this debate like pandit ji said that uh, look i would still want to sing in the morning but nowadays if i go somewhere and i am performing and somebody requests that rag which actually is supposed to be sung Mm-hmm. in the morning, morning in the afternoon or the evening i will sometimes do it albeit regrettingly so where do you stand in this discussion so at the uh, the i have a small laboratory called the music brain and creativity lab and this was the first question we asked in sort of in this plexus of neuroscience and music because the time theory in hindustani classical music is very strong and it's a it's an is the elephant in the room so when you listen to let's say a bhairav do you really hear the morning and if you say i'm hearing the morning in bhairav what is actually giving you the idea of morning is it the komal rishab or is it the way in which hari prasad chaurasia ji like you know gently touches that in a very plaintive way so is it really the swara is it really the intervals or is it the way in which the alap is like really nicely unfurled just like the unfurling of the dawn uh, or is it the timbre of the flute itself so we did this very short experiment we scrambled uh, samples of hindustani classical ragas morning evening ragas and we asked people who had no sense of the time theory or they were not musicians so they had no idea of the praharas and the ragas and so on so we played the these samples to them set of three samples and we asked them well which one of these is according to you signals the morning the afternoon and the evening and why uh, and so we were also looking at valence like you know uh, what do people really see when they say i feel this is a morning raga or i feel this is an evening raga because it's an objective the layman on the street does he really hear it as a morning raga or is it just a you know it's an idiom that is shared by a few musicologists and music uh, musicians and uh, strangely what we realized was that uh, most of them were all over the place we asked painters we looked we looked at visual artists carnatic musicians um, and just people on the street and we said okay which feels like morning to you so strangely people said this feels like evening for a morning raga um people associated uh, emotions with ragas like you know happy sad meditative plaintive but never mapped it to time they couldn't associate time very intuitively as intuitively as they associated emotions to like uh, certain samples and uh, strangely everything that hari ji played hari prasad chaurasia plays or plays on his flute sounds meditative to everybody so we realize that it is the timbre or that sonority or the quality of the instrument from which that raga is heard or sounded that actually is the deal breaker it can actually sing in the morning or drown the evening <laughs> and so there is uh, there is really no um, uh what do you say general neuro aesthetic consensus on that but as a musician myself the carnatic classical tradition really does not uh, follow the morning evening ragas and um i personally feel that uh, it is so much in the hands of the musician to nuance i look at the bollywood composers for example yahoo chahe mujh koi mujhe jangli kahe कहने दो जे कहता रहे यू थिंक दैट्स इन व्हाट रागा डू यू थिंक दैट्स इन इट्स इन वन ऑफ द मोस्ट प्लेंटिव माइनर स्केल्स ऑफ इंडियन म्यूजिक सो लिरिक प्रेजेंटेशन ऑर्केस्ट्रेशन द रिदम इन व्हिच द रागा इज प्रेजेंटेड दे आर सो मच मोर पावरफुल देन जस्ट द रागास एंड द स्वरास एंड देयर इंटरवल्स सो देयर सो मच इन द हैंड्स ऑफ द कंपोजर दिस द परफॉर्मर दैट ही कैन रियली take the music away or a raga away from its intended uh, or ascribed rasa so to speak so i think that's like i said it's neither black and white it's somewhere in the middle <laughs> fair enough uh, i personally uh, i think just my i'm not a trained uh, trained singer uh, in in any uh, comparison but uh, i just feel that uh, as someone who enjoys classical music Uh, whether carnatic or uh, or hindustani or even semi classical whether it's in the form of uh, any lok geet uh, from any part of the country i just think the 
sometimes you got to break the rules to make sure it stays alive it's more a utilitarian approach i guess in my case it's more about realism like uh, let's make sure uh, something stays alive and uh, i guess if that means sometimes uh, we have to sing uh, in the evening uh, morning raga in the evening i think there is uh, nothing wrong in it uh, but yeah this has been an uh, absolutely wonderful experience talking to you first of all th- thanks for coming and writing this wonderful book so what wh- what next project if you could tell us well uh, from the desk i guess i'm uh, now looking at the intercultural encounters of uh, music in the mysore court so i'm that's the next book on how um, mysore subverted colonial uh, coloniality into uh, a culture of cultural resilience so that's the next book i'm also sort of uh, the biography i've been bit hard bitten hard by the biography bug uh, i realized that there is not a biography of uh, nalbadi krishna rajawadiyar uh, the maharaja's uncle who was known as the rajarshi and so like i said it's one thing to say, sit and cry foul that there is not enough of this float uh, you know positive stories floating around positive psychology on the rajas floating around and that we are only documenting invaders uh, i want to actually sort of uh, get down and uh, write more and create more literature in that domain so that's what's coming up next um as a musician i'm interested in cultural diplomacy that's my next project i'm looking at how uh, our music classical music can be taken uh, can be used as an agency to connect global communities um so like a kanakadasa meets rumi and uh, kabir meets kuvempu <laughs> things like that Awesome awesome I I really look forward to it and uh, once again thank you very much for coming and uh, chatting uh, with me over here I wish you nothing but uh, success and and you know this is fun I I always uh, it, it is always nice to talk to people who are way more talented than me at least you know I I know what I can aspire aspire <laughs> to be <laughs> no i i would not accept that kushal ji you have really 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 it's an art to actually bring out the best from each one of your interviewees and uh, i have i've felt the joy of being in some very safe adroit hands thank you so much for inviting me on to this show and i look forward to more such associations with you Oh yes we we definitely are going to speak again i'm going to try to do something where i'll maybe organize a music discussion where i'll have you i'll have some other people i want to oh, yes. i want to do that i've already thought of what i'm going to do i'm going to share it with you when we go offline i'm i'm going to try working around with that but guys before we wrap things up once again in the description of the podcast if you're watching this on youtube or you're listening on spotify itunes जो भी ऑडियो प्लेटफॉर्म्स होते हैं गो एंड चेक द डिस्क्रिप्शन इन द डिस्क्रिप्शन यू विल सी डॉक्टर नवरत्नस वेबसाइट यू कैन गो एंड चेक द चेक दैट वेबसाइट आउट एंड यू कैन इट विल हैव अ YouTube चैनल द Facebook पेज एवरीथिंग एल्स आल्सो इन द डिस्क्रिप्शन यू विल हैव अ लिंक टू बाय द बुक आई वुड रेकमेंड ऑल ऑफ यू टू गो एंड बाय द बुक एंड एज फार एज आई एम कंसर्नड यू नो द ड्रिल द चारवक पॉडकास्ट इज अ मेंबर ड्रिवन पॉडकास्ट सो इफ यू कैन सपोर्ट मी बिकम अ मेंबर ऑन फैनमो YouTube Patreon और बाय द मर्च subscribe to this channel like this video leave your comments over the, in the comment section i'll see you guys next time until then namaste take care bye bye namaste